0: You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, so good to see you this morning. Um, If we haven't had a chance to meet before, my name's Sam, and I serve as one of the pastors at CA Church, and always so fun to get to be here at Town Center and to spend some time. Thank you, Tyler. Can you give a hand for Tyler? (laughs) Servant of all. Well, we are in the middle of a a vision series, a short series. It's a three-week series. We kicked it off kind of early on in September, and we are coming today to the very close. And uh, so we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 9. If you have a Bible, you can turn there right now, Matthew chapter 9. And uh, I'll just do a bit of a recap in case you forget or you weren't here over this last few weeks. But um, on week one of the series, Pastor Brad articulated our desire as a church to be a people who, who are marked by Jesus' presence. We want to lean into worship and prayer and becoming a people who have been with Jesus. Last week, we talked about formation. And uh, Pastor Brad talked about our desire to be people who who are formed in Jesus' image. And then that leads us to today, where together we're gonna have a conversation about what it looks like to join in Jesus' mission. And so... um, if you, uh, if you have your Bibles open, or even if you don't, the words are going to be on the screen. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We're going to look at Matthew chapter 9, and we'll pick up in verse, verse 9. Matthew 9, 9. Here's what it says. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. Okay, so right off the top this morning, I wanna ask you this question. When you hear the word mission, what do you think of? Or maybe I'll say, when you hear the word evangelism, what comes to mind? Is it, is it positive emotions and thoughts that are stirred up when you hear the word uh, evangelism or mission? Or is there baggage associated with those words? Uh, depending on, on your age or, or your family of origin or where you're from, there's probably different things that are associated with those, those different words. To the boomers in the room, it's possible that when you think about evangelism that you think, of, um, that you think of Billy Graham crusades where just as I am is playing in the background on the piano while thousands of people come up to the front to give their lives to Jesus. Maybe that's what you think about this morning. Or, or maybe others in the room think about televangelists. Who uh, who maybe that's or tent revivals. I I have this distinct memory growing up uh, in the '90s and and going to revival services with my family. And I remember this one time going up to receive prayer. I was probably like nine or ten years old, and I went up to receive prayer. I grew up pretty charismatic, and so um, many people were on the floor. They had fallen over during prayer, and so I went up for prayer. And as a nine-year-old kid, I didn't fall over. And so, so the revival preacher, he started to, to, to pray louder and almost like spitting him. I still remember the smell of his breath as he prayed for me. And, uh, and, and I still wasn't falling over, so then he pushed me and I ended up on the ground. Maybe that's what you think about when you think about evangelists. <laughs> or maybe you think about street preachers. Maybe you think of, of, of people standing on a soapbox saying, turn or burn. Or even that, there's that guy um, that wears a sandwich board in Port Moody by the breweries who says, it says, repent. Turn to Jesus. If you're younger, if you're a, a, a Gen Z in the room, it's possible that you even hear evangelism and you think, bad. Like, that's bad. A recent Barna study showed that uh, the, a huge percentage of Gen Zs actually think that it's wrong to evangelize about your faith. So to to try, try to convert people to Christianity is not a good thing. But, but what if mission wasn't about yelling at people or pushing them over with sweaty hands? <laughs> What if if it wasn't about holding signs, telling people that they're going to hell in a handbasket? What if living on mission, what if living on mission was simply about aligning our hearts with the heart of God and pointing people towards the greatest source of hope amidst a world that is so incredibly hopeless? I don't know about you, but that is something I can get behind, to be people joining in Jesus' mission. Well, let's take a closer look of exactly what what Jesus' mission actually is. In um, in Luke chapter chapter nineteen, verse ten, Jesus summarizes his mission in a few short words. He says, and this is speaking of himself, he says, "The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost." In, in its purest form, I, I think you could say that is Jesus' mission. And so I wanna just quickly unpack those words. First, the son of man. Uh, That's an Old Testament word that describes the promised Messiah, the rescuer that God had promised to send his people. So Jesus is saying that he, that, that God's Messiah, the promised rescuer had come to seek. This is a very relational term to be in close proximity with, you could say, to seek and then to save. That word in the original Greek is sozo, which means to heal or to preserve, to rescue. And so Jesus came, he came to seek and to sozo the lost. And, and when it talks about lost here, it's talking about lost in a spiritual sense. Those who, who are, are, are lost and wandering and without hope. In another place in Luke's gospel, Jesus expands and kind of deepens our understanding of his mission by quoting Isaiah. And here's what he says. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoner, recover sight to the blind, and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so you could say Jesus, he came, his mission was, he embodied it, he proclaimed and demonstrated that the kingdom of God was at hand. He came to set the captives free, the prisoners, free, to make the blind people see. And simply put, he came to seek and save the lost. That's his mission. That's the mission of God to restore relationship with a lost and wandering creation. Okay, so with that in mind about Jesus' mission, I wanna go back and look at our teaching text, Matthew chapter nine, and I wanna walk through that story as as almost a bit of a case study for mission, as a window into what this seeking and saving the lost actually looks like in real time. So let's work through that text a little bit more slowly and we'll make some observations along the way as we do. So pick up in verse nine. It says, as Jesus went out from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he said. And Matthew got up and followed him. So the first observation that I wanna make from our text, and this is an important one, observation number one, Jesus is the one who calls people. You say, Jesus is the one who does the saving. I want you to see this. Matthew is is just going about his day. He's at work. He's probably working through a lineup of people who are coming to pay their taxes because he's a tax collector. And Jesus just comes in. He intercepts his path. As far as we can see in the text, Matthew is not the one who's out seeking Jesus. Jesus was the one seeking Matthew. And, And I point that out for a few reasons. First, because I think it's theologically important for us to understand that God is the one who draws people to himself. That it's Jesus who does the saving. That's it's not us that does the saving. But secondly, because I think it's, 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 it's one of those things that brings a lot of hope to the people in our world who seem unreachable, who, who, who say they would never step foot in a church, who you've tried to talk to about faith, but it feels like you're just talking to a concrete wall. You just, you just, you just can't get through to them. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a childhood friend. Can I just say that person in your life, they are not outside of the reach of Jesus. Matthew probably would have been the last person his friends thought would become a Christian. Why? Well, because of the kind of guy he was. He was a tax collector. He had, he had wealth. He had all sorts of fancy toys and a home. He didn't need anything. He also had power. Like, being a tax collector would have put him in a really good standing with the Romans because it would give him certain privileges that other common people wouldn't have had. Also because he was a thief. Like, tax collectors were crooks. They would upcharge people so that, so that um, they could pad their pockets with people's money. So to follow Jesus, it would mean that he'd have to put away his crooked business practices, probably leave his livelihood behind. And so for all of those reasons and more, Matthew would not have been the prime Christian candidate. He's not the kind of guy that you would think would actually come if you invited him to Alpha. And yet Jesus calls him and he responds. And then what's the first thing that Matthew does? Look at verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Um, Luke, who's one of the other biblical authors, he records this exact same story, but he says it like this. Then Matthew held a great banquet feast for Jesus at his house and he gathered a large crowd of tax collectors and others to eat with them." So here's observation number two. Matthew encounters Jesus, and immediately he throws a dinner party. (laughs) When I think of that moment, I imagine Matthew just running tax collector booths. Remember, they didn't have cell phones or text messaging. right? So he's going booth by booth, just telling his friends, you gotta come and meet this Jesus. Like, come and meet my new rabbi, the one who called me by name. You have to at least give him a chance. And then and then he probably rushed home and set up his table. Like I imagine he probably put out the wine and started up the barbecue, tried to clean the house up a little bit. And then he invited everyone he knew for dinner so that they could come and meet this Jesus who had changed his life. And then that night, as Matthew did have his friends over for dinner, as they laughed and as they talked and as they ate and probably drank, Matthew's table became a vehicle for Jesus' mission. The Kingdom of God began to break into matthew 's home as they sat around the table and ate that meal together. I wonder what it would look like if we viewed our homes and tables as outposts for jesus' ministry for jesus mission there 's a, a book that I love uh, it 's called a Gospel, The Gospel comes with a House key and it 's by a woman named Rosaria Butterfield, and in her book. She shares uh, her testimony, how she came to faith in Jesus. And here's the short end of Rosaria Butterfield's story. Basically, she was a a very far left, radical lesbian feminist. She was also a 10-year professor at Syracuse University with a specialty in postmodern critical theory and thought. And uh, she was writing this book about how Bible-believing Christians were essentially the worst, like they were a menace and a threat to society. But as a result of her study, she she actually needed to meet some of these Bible-believing Christians. And uh, she had written an article in the, in the New York paper near her area. And it was this scathing review of a men's conference that had happened in her area. And just ripping it apart. It represented everything that she was against. And so she wrote this, this thing. And a, and a pastor, a local pastor, wrote back. And his response was really thoughtful and kind. And it came with an invitation to dinner. And so she thought, well, I have to meet these people anyway. So I might as well go and meet this guy. And uh, she writes about uh, her encounter as she pulled up to the house, and then as she walked in, and she just talks about this profound experience with hospitality, how it was so disarming, and, uh, and, and she talks about how she, how she experienced that, and, and, and then at first, she didn't really understand too much of why these people were the way they were, um, but she came back time and time again for dinner. She came over and over again, and then she started to come to their small group, to their Bible study. And then she, she, she found it really curious the way that they would sing these, these ancient hymns and songs. And so at first she just would stand and watch. And then she said eventually she found herself humming and then singing along too. And slowly but surely over time she began to encounter Jesus. And it absolutely changed her life. That was a number of years ago. But now Rosaria Butterfield is a committed follower of Jesus. She's married to a reformed Presbyterian pastor where together they lead a church outside of Duke University. She's a mom to both biological and foster children and has been just radically transformed by Jesus. But it all started with conversation around the dinner table. Henry Nowen, he says that the role of the Christian is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. And that's what Matthew did is he invited the tax collectors, all of his buddies over for that meal. That's also what, what the pastor and his wife did is they invited Butterfield over for dinner. They didn't argue or condemn or try to outsmart her with some sort of apologetical argument. They just pulled up a chair. They poured a glass of wine. They treated her like family. And as she watched them and as she watched the way that they lived and interacted and parented their children and all these sorts of things, slowly, very slowly, she began to engage with Jesus. She began to encounter him. Okay, here's the the third observation from our text. This is a quick one, but I think it's important. Religious people don't like Jesus' evangelism strategies. We see this all throughout the New Testament, but, but we see it even specifically in our text in verse 12. When the Pharisees saw this, it says, they asked Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, the Pharisees, they were always critical about Jesus. They didn't like that he allowed women to be his disciples. They didn't like the fact that that he would sit and eat with sinners so much so that in another place in scripture, Jesus is referred to as a glutton and a drunk, a friend of prostitutes and sinners. And and just to be clear, that is a a very derogatory nickname. And, And I'm not gonna say too, too much on this point except that we need to watch our own hearts for a religious spirit. The longer we follow Jesus... The longer we're Christians, the easier it is to get critical and and let a religious spirit creep in. Like, we can start to us and them people. We can become condescending to those who aren't like us, thinking of ourselves as better than because we we maybe don't struggle with those things anymore, or because our story didn't include addiction or a wrestle with sexuality. You know, also, I think sometimes we can expect those who are outside the church who aren't yet following Jesus to live as though they're, they're those who do. But what we see in Jesus is this willingness to just sit in the mess with people. Jesus was able to hold the line of grace and truth so beautifully. See, I think if Jesus had, had been at that dinner and he had said, you know, the Pharisees came by and Jesus had said, you know, tax collectors, you need to repent. Turn from your wicked ways. Like if that's what, Jesus, if he went to all these dinner parties that he went to, preaching a message of, of repentance, I think the Pharisees could totally get down with that. That's what they, they wanted tax collectors to be put in their place, but what they couldn't stand was Jesus showing them mercy, was Jesus sitting with them, listening to them, listening to their story, and then just inviting them to journey with him, to follow him. You know, and maybe it's important to say these Pharisees weren't bad people. They oftentimes get a really bad rap in, 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 when, we, when we talk about them. If these were people who really wanted to follow God. They had just missed the plot line. They had missed the heart of God amidst their religious activities. And so that's why Jesus, as we go on in our text, he clarifies God's heart and God's mission. That's our fourth observation. Look at verse 12. He says, "'It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners.'" He says, "'I desire mercy, not sacrifice.'" That's actually a quote from back in the Old Testament from Hosea, the prophet, where in the original context, the the prophet Hosea is calling out God's people because they're fulfilling all the external requirements of the law. They're performing their sacrifices and bringing their offerings to the temple and all the rest of it. They're doing all their religious duties, but they're completely missing the heart of it all. They've missed arguably what matters most, which is love, loving God and loving their neighbor. And so out of duty, they would come to the temple and they would do their worship and they would cleanse themselves and all the rest of it. But then throughout the week, they would treat their neighbors like crap. They would be lying and stealing and leaving the poor and vulnerable to care for themselves. They said they loved God, but their actions towards others showed that they really didn't. And so God responded to them by saying, hey, just so you know, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, until you show love towards your neighbors, until you show compassion for the vulnerable and the refugee, don't come here and sing me songs. That is not what I'm after. I don't want it. Over and over again, we see in scripture that, that mercy and justice is at the very center of God's heart. He loves, he, he loves all people, absolutely, the rich and the poor. But all through scripture, we see that he gives special priority to, to those who are marginalized. to to those that everyone else has forgotten about, to the widow and to the orphan, to the underprivileged and the refugee. And so to join in God's mission is to engage in a ministry of mercy. Okay, what does this mean for us as a church? How does this story of of Matthew coming to Jesus and and then Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees, how does it connect to our vision as a church for mission? Well, Well, I wanna answer that question in three parts or sort of break it down into three categories. Joining in Jesus' mission means that we would be people who who live into gospel proclamation, gospel demonstration, and then gospel multiplication. Let me explain. First gospel proclamation. We, We want to be a people who are so fluent in sharing the gospel who will share the gospel with anyone and everyone who will listen. And to be clear, this isn't something that's reserved for, for pastors or paid ministry staff or just something that happens in the context of this campus at this time. Now, this is a responsibility of every follower of Jesus. You have been filled with his spirit and sent out to be a witness in your, your areas of influence, your life. And, and, and I guess maybe it's worth asking the question, like, why does that matter? Like, why does living out, why does gospel proclamation matter? Because life and death is in the balance. Jesus is clear. He's not just a way that leads to life. He is the way, the only way. And so to reject Jesus' free gift of salvation is to choose eternal separation from God. Heaven and hell is on the other side of people's decision about Jesus. And so that's why as a church, it's our dream that every single person in the Tri-Cities would have an opportunity to hear the good news of the gospel and respond. That every person in our community would hear that there's a God who loves them and died for them and wants relationship with them. And that happens through these weekend services. It happens through events that we do as a church and put on. But you know where it, where it most effectively happens? When, when we, when, when we, the ordinary people of CA Church, just live out the gospel in our ordinary lives. I recognize that evangelism can be scary the idea of telling people about Jesus, especially in a culture like ours where it's almost like a hostility towards the Christian faith. It can be so daunting. But let me make it really simple. All it is, is doing what Matthew did, inviting people to your table, saying, come and see what I have found. Like the best way that we can engage in gospel proclamation is simply sharing our story. Like, why do you follow Jesus? What's, what, what difference has Jesus made in your own life? Just becoming fluent in telling those stories. I uh, I made a friend this last summer, a new friend. Rather than using his real name, I'll I'll call him Dan, just for privacy's sake. But um, Dan was a waiter at a local restaurant, and between Diet Coke refills and the appetizer round, we started a conversation and got to know each other. And It turns out Dan had recently moved um, from Alberta, and uh, he, he was having a really difficult time making friends, which was really hard for me to understand, because he's a super nice guy, super friendly, but he told me he was, he was really not sure if he was going to stay in BC, because he just had a really hard time connecting with people, so I just said, Dan, would you, would you want to be friends? Like, I, w- I would love to be your friend, and he kind of looked at me confused, <laughs> I and mean, then he's like, are you serious? Yeah, sure. And so I grabbed a scrap piece of paper and I started to write down my number. So I was like, seven, seven, eight, two, three. And, and as I got to about that part in writing my number, Dan asked me the question that every pastor is scared that someone's going to ask them in the public square. He's like, Sam, what do you do for work? <laughs> and so I'm like, I thought this may be the, the very end of our conversation. I'm like, I'm a pastor, I, I work at a church. And he's like, oh, cool, well, I'm not religious at all, but my grandma was a Christian. And so we just kind of started to talk. We had a little bit more sm- small talk. I, I paid my bill at the end of the night, and we kind of went our separate ways. And, uh, and, then, and then a few nights later, Na- uh, Nathan, that's his real name. Okay, now you know. <laughs> then a few, a few days later, now that you know, I'll just use his name, Nathan, okay. A few days later, Nathan sent me a text, and... Uh, and he's like, hey, I don't know if you're serious about hanging out, but I'd love to connect. And so, I'm like, of course, I was, I was serious. And so, we, we just went, uh, we set up a time. We went to, uh, I live right by the breweries in Port Moody, so we went to Yellow Dog. And as we sat, sat across the table from each other and uh, you know, snacked on a pepperoni stick or something, um, we just started to talk about life and, and faith. And then he teed me up from the, for the question that, that most Christians are wanting their friends to ask. He said, why do you follow Jesus? Like, why have you given your whole life to this? And uh, I was not expecting to talk about faith this soon. Like, I was just trying to gather with a friend who's new to the area. But since he asked, I said, well, because I find Jesus to be the most compelling person who ever lived. I think about his teachings and the way he lived and how countercultural it is. And I actually buy his claim to be God that he's the son of God. And I have experienced him in my own. And then I just started to share my story of how Jesus has been at work in my own life. And then we got on to talking about other things and I had a great, great evening together. And, uh, and Nathan did not give his life to Jesus that night. And that wasn't my point. <laughs> I was just trying to create space. And then since then we've been texting a lot, we've connected a few times, and uh, it turns out he has never had a birthday party before. And so Jorley and I are gonna try to hold his first surprise him with his first birthday party. He, uh, he's never had sushi, being from Alberta. And so we're gonna take him to our favorite sushi joint with the girls and just create space, as, as Henry now is, just creating space where change can occur. What if we saw our homes? What if we saw our tables or the table of a local brewery as an outpost for gospel ministry? Like, what would that look like in our context? And I I know many people in this room already live this way, but but we we imagine, we're pretty sure there's about 1,000 people who are part of our church across the various campuses. Sorry, 1,000 families, 1,000 households who are part of CA Church. What would it look like? if each of those people in the neighborhoods and the workplaces and the diversities of where they live and who they live with, what would it look like if each of us started to take Jesus' command seriously to live on mission and saw our homes and our tables as an outpost for gospel ministry? Let me tell you what I mean by that. If we were just amazing neighbors, (laughs) got to know the people who lived on our streets and our apartment floors and our cul-de-sacs, showed kindness and care. Like in a society that is so marked by loneliness, it's crazy what an invitation for dinner can do. Maybe engaging in proclamation, gospel proclamation is even inviting someone to Alpha, which Brad just talked about. You know, we are so, so passionate about Alpha as a church because Alpha creates this safe space for people to come in the context of hospitality, conversations around a dinner table, explore faith in the person of Jesus. You know, back in 2021 as a church, we had set a goal. As we were looking towards the future, we said, hey, by 2025, it would be amazing if we could have 500 people go through Alpha. That felt like a crazy goal. We're like, wow, wow. You know, we're halfway toward to 2025 now, and we have seen 250 people come through Alpha so far. That's amazing. And that is you. That's our church family inviting, actually taking it seriously, inviting friends to the table to explore. And we've seen so many baptisms. This year, I think we've seen almost 30 baptisms come out of Alpha itself. And so it's something, it's something that we're so passionate about because we see Jesus using it. And you know, it's not too late to invite someone to either of the locations that Brad talked about, up at the Mariner campus or at Burke Mountain. Okay, that's gospel proclamation. Let's talk for a moment about gospel demonstration. We want to be a people that take Jesus' words seriously when he says that he desires mercy over sacrifice. That caring for the poor and vulnerable is at the very core of his mission. And so can I just share a couple of the cool ways that we're engaging in that as a family, as a church? Um, I don't know if you know this, but but every single month we serve hundreds of low-income people through our food pantry. And there's many people in this room who are actively involved in putting that on. And uh, it's, it's incredible. It's not, it's not just food that we're offering, but it's relationship. It's time with guests. It's space for God to work. It's hope. And, and so the people that, that are leading that ministry do it with such dignity. Um, earlier this year, we launched the Dressing Room, which is a clothing distribution center for people who otherwise wouldn't have new clothes to come and to receive clothes. And that's so special for, for a kid going into school to be able to actually go into the fall with a clean, fresh pair of shoes. Or you think about someone coming out of addiction or a halfway house and trying to go to a job interview, but they don't have a proper thing to wear. They could actually come and get clean clothing, professional clothing as they kind of transition into life. That is gospel demonstration, showing love and care with no strings attached. This winter, again, as a church family, we're gonna, we're gonna create space up at our Mariner campus uh, for people who don't have houses in the colder months to be able to come in and to stay overnight in our facility. We've sponsored many, many refugee families as a church. Um, We actually have our next refugee coming in just a few weeks. His name is Mardan, he's in his early 20s and uh, the team has, has let me know that Mardan has never, he's never been in a place, never been in a country where he can publicly practice his faith, where he can actually gather in a room like this and worship and learn with other people. And so we get to do that together. We get to include him into our church family. So cool. Um. We're able to do all the things that we do as a, as a result of the extravagant generosity of this church family. As you give financially, as you give of your time, as you actually buy in and do this, as you live out the gospel in these beautiful ways, but we wanna to continue to dream as a church. What would it look like for us to, to care, to, to grow our care for the poor and marginalized? Yes, corporately as a body, but what would that look like in your individual life? To assess the needs in your community So look at your neighbors and say, how can I demonstrate the gospel in the way that I live? Okay, lastly, I want to talk about gospel multiplication. Matthew chapter nine doesn't actually say too, too much about multiplication, but if you follow the story through the rest of Matthew, you find that that by the end of the story, Jesus sends out Matthew and the other disciples to go and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You know, we are called to be disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples, to see the kingdom of God grow and expand, multiplying here in our local context as well as around the world. And you know, Jesus said we're to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In our context, that looks like going to Coquitlam, and Port Coquitlam, and Port Moody, and overseas through our global partners. I want to take a moment to, to talk about gospel multiplication here locally, and then we'll look really quickly overseas as well. First, Local. As a church, we're committed to the multiplication of leaders, of really raising up servant-hearted leaders to lead the church with integrity and strength. And that happens in a multitude of different ways as a church family, but one of the ways I wanna, I wanna point to is our pastoral apprenticeship program. And we have a pastoral apprentice, Adam, who's here at this campus. Have you already introduced him, Brad? Amazing. So Adam's going to be around here and serving. Um, But this is one of the ways that we engage in in gospel multiplication is gathering leaders together and training them and equipping them and growing their understanding of scripture and theology and then sending them out across Canada and some even overseas to to continue the work of God there. Um, We're also committed to multiplication of campuses and services and you know, making space for as many people as possible to come and to experience Jesus. This is the reason that last, or earlier this month, we launched an evening service at our Mariner campus. And there is already gathering about 150 people in the evening to worship. And, to, and there's such a life and a vibrancy. So we're committed to making space. That's why we planted Rail City Campus. Um, in Port Moody not too long ago. That's why 10 years ago we stepped out and planted this community. And as a church, we have a desire to continue to plant these smaller communities in neighborhoods around the tri-cities and surrounding areas. Our hope and desire is that in the next 16 to 24 months that we would plant our next local campus so that we could engage more people in their neighborhoods and, uh, and following Jesus in that way. Okay, that's local. Let's talk global. You know, one of the things that, that always has set CA Church apart is the work that we get to do together overseas. And if, you, if you're wondering today, if you're passionate about overseas missions, you're like, why has Sam not talked more about that today? We're actually dedicating a whole service to that in November. We're going to talk about overseas, what we're doing, and give updates on where God is at work. And so I'm going to save a lot of it for that Sunday, but I do want to point out to a, f- a few things that we're able to do as a church um, you know, very soon Brad was pointing to that a, that a team is gonna be going to Mexico. We have, as a church, been part of a mission in Mexico for I think about, is it 15 years, Brad? almost 20 years, and as a result of that long-term partnership in Mexico, we're, we've been able to plant churches, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of people get baptized, and uh, orphans cared for, and so much amazing ministry that's happened in Mexico. Even right now, there's a team of people from our church that are in Mexico, and another batch are going to come from Town Center very soon, and, uh, and so, so that's beautiful. Also, we, we have amazing ministry that's happening in the Philippines. We've been able to partner with an orphanage over there, and uh, a, a batch of, of youth from our church, um, went over uh, on spring break and were able to care for orphans and engage in that way. And so beautiful what we're able to do in the Philippines. And then even in the spring, um, Pastor, Pastor David and Pastor Marty and a team from our church went out to the Middle East and they built a safe house for pastors because it's really dangerous, obviously, to be a Christian a spiritual leader in the Middle East. And so a safe house where pastors can come and escape to. And, uh, and they also did a lot of training of, of pastors of the underground church. Uh, Bible and theological training, so they can go and continue to be a witness in their context. And uh, so there's so much more I wanna talk about with what we're doing globally, but we'll wait for that service in November to update you more at that time. We wanna be a people who are joining in Jesus' mission, here locally, in our spheres of influence, and overseas, as we can continue to advance the work of Jesus. Okay, We've covered a lot of ground. I wanna take a moment right now to, to just pray together. So I wanna encourage you to bow your heads. And uh, we've, we've gotten quite wide with what we've talked about. We've kind of zoomed out a few levels and talked about as a church planting campuses and, and stuff we wanna do overseas and that's beautiful and we're gonna to continue to move forward in, in those areas. But I wanna create a moment, I just want to, to, to pause for a sec and for us to ask God in the quietness of this moment, hey, what does engaging in your mission mean for me? In the, in the place, the neighborhood that you've placed me in, in the workplace, in the family, in the school, what does it look like for me to be about gospel proclamation, gospel demonstration, to be multiplying disciples in my sphere of influence? Just take a moment and let's just sit in the quietness of this moment and allow God to speak. What does it look like for me personally? Maybe it's being intentional with a friendship, inviting someone to your table. Maybe it's inviting that friend to Alpha, a family member. Maybe it's looking for needs in the community and stepping up or helping with that refugee family that's coming. Let's just create a few minutes to wait on him and ask, what does it mean for me? Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of C.A. Church.